hold on to your seats today, you guys. I have a life-changing guest, and I'm not kidding. Dr. Shafali is on the show today. She has been on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday. She was recently on School of Greatness podcast with one of my favorites, Lewis Howes, and she has changed the way that I parent, if you can believe that. She is an incredible, incredible speaker, author, and psychologist who has changed the way that we adult children are learning how to reclaim ourselves, evolve, and the way we parent. She is the author of the book, The Conscious Parent, and hosting an incredible conference next month in Long Beach, California called Evolve. This conference, um, she talks about it in the podcast, so I won't I won't mention it here, but she has a discount code for you listeners, $50 off, off with the code 50OFF, O-F-F, and she also has limited scholarships available. All you have to do is write in to her office at office at drshafali.com, and Shafali is spelled S-H-E-F-A-L-I. If you go to that website, you can also click on Evolve 2017 to learn more about the conference and also to learn more about Dr. Shafali. I hope you guys enjoy this show. If you are thinking about having kids, have kids, or are a child of a parent, this episode is going to change a lot for you. I was incredibly grateful that she took an opportunity to speak with me, and I think you guys are going to love it. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. I am thrilled and absolutely honored to have Dr. Shafali here with me today. Welcome. Thank you, Meredith. I'm so excited to talk to your audience. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited. I have been a fangirl of yours since seeing you on Super Soul Sunday with Oprah. So I'm thrilled to talk to you. So you guys, Dr. Shafali is just incredible. She is like the parenting whisperer. She has a book um, called The Conscious Parent, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. But to kick it off, I wanted to share this quote from her book with you guys. As far as children goes, the quote is, We cannot expect them to become something that we are not willing to embody ourselves. So I love that. So let's talk about conscious parenting. What is a conscious parent? Well, that quote really says a lot because in unconscious parenting when we're not aware we expect unconsciously our children to live out our fantasies but like that quote says we can't expect anything of the other period we certainly can't expect anything of the other that we ourselves don't radiate with or reflect especially our children our children can only grow up in an atmosphere that stretches to the limits of our consciousness, right? So whatever limits we create from our consciousness, those are the limits that they will live with. So if we want expansiveness, limitlessness, courage, and risk-taking, then those are the conditions that first we need to set forth emanating from our consciousness. If those are not in our imagination, we can talk it, but they won't grow up in those conditions. They'll just hear the words, but never will see 
an embodied example. So a conscious parent understands that their own energy has so much to do with how their children grow up and they work on themselves. They look at themselves as a work in progress to work on and to delve into and to heal so that they can provide an environment for their children that is wholesome and whole. So you came into this realm of of study because you realized that the adults that you were counseling needed to talk about their childhood. So you thought that there was a lot to this childhood thing. And so how did you come how did your practice come into being? Well, you know, every therapist understands that, right? It's the basis of psychology. But I understood that it was more than simply, you know, excavating your past in terms of all the crap that was in there. It was also teaching them how to become conscious in the moment. And that has a lot to be taken from Eastern mindfulness. So I integrate my practice with Eastern mindfulness, which teaches you how to be in the moment and to be present and to be detached so that you don't always react and you're always watching who it is you are in that moment and how that is impacting energetically and vibrationally the environment that you're trying to create and doing the inner work that is part of Western psychology. So I really integrate both in my approach to help parents. So when you say conscious parenting, how is that different from what we know as helicopter parenting? Because aren't the helicopter parents very aware of everything that's going on? But you're talking more about being a conscious person yourself before, not necessarily a a parent, right? Like the consciousness starts with you as an individual. Yeah. Being a conscious parent is understanding how fear is at the root of all your reactivity. Fear, fear. fear. So we're all terrified parents, really. Yeah, well, we're all just living in the future, imagining all these horrible things are going to happen to our children, and we really try to control it. So helicopter parenting is the epitome of this fear-based parenting, where these parents hover around their children all the time, and micromanage their every move and their every talk because it gives them some sort of control, gives them a sense of control. But little do they realize that they've mistaken caring for control and they've mistaken fear for caring. So they don't care about the child really, they care about their own inner state of fragility. They want to make sure the child is okay because they are feeling not okay. Mm -hmm. They want to control the child's life because they don't have much going on in their life. So they've taken on their children as these pet projects to really <laughs> fill fill a void within themselves. That is a lot. There's so much in what you just said. It's terrifying. <laughs> but I remember I, one of the first times I heard you speak, you mentioned, you know, you have you have this time until the child is 10 years old and then you've <laughs> lost them. So explain that a little bit. Well, it's not so dire. You always have time. <laughs> But, you know, the child's formative years are foundationally, they've got to have, uh, you know, a foundational period. Typically, that's zero to 10, right? I mean, then they're kind of developed, then they're kind of acting on what they already know. So I just encourage parents to take advantage of this, not to make it ominous or scary, but to take advantage of it and to seize the opportunity that children present in their early years, not just for the child to develop, but really for the parent to enter their deepest state of presence 
and consciousness because children will teach the parent mm -hmm. how to enter the present moment instead of the other way around. So I want to go through a couple stages of parenting and see how kind of get your how we become conscious and present in each stage. So sure. when, what about you are pregnant and you are about to have this baby? What what is what do you do? How do you become a conscious parent from day one? Well, you know, you watch yourself and you watch your ridiculous fantasies being created in your mind. You know, when my child and I and when my child this and when my child grows up and understand that these are all fantasies based in the future. So you're setting yourself up. Go ahead and set yourself up. And then when those things don't come to fruition, that's when you crash and burn and have postpartum and you, you're in shock. And how many parents get paralyzed because it's too traumatic. Not only is the process of birth physically taxing and exhausting, so are the crashing of all your expectations. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't predict this, but you can watch yourself going out of control in your desire to have control right from the start. And this That's is the so mania. True. Oh my goodness, I never even thought about that. <laughs> I never even thought about it. I do remember sitting when my firstborn, when he was about three weeks old, and I had this thought in my head, I thought, if someone comes to the door and says, can we take your child? I'll be like, yes, you can have him. Because it was so, it was such a shock. You're so right. I had this this um, thought that everything would be great. I was going to be this natural hypnobirthing mom. And yeah, you do. You set up these expectations. Crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it all starts and goes downhill right from pre-birth. <laughs> So, so the, the thing to do is check your expectations, manage them, recognize that they're coming from a state of lack and from a state of incompletion within yourself. And um, when you say you know, a state of incompletion and lack, what do you, do you mean that that's what's driving the fear is what's driving that or, or vice versa? Or, yeah, okay. yeah, I think we start we even to the desire to have a child. Is coming from a desire to fulfill some expectation in your life, right? It's one of the things you check off. So you have to and think I'm, about that before the long before. I mean, you should ask yourself before. these questions before having children. Yeah, you can't even like blame yourself at this point because it's been ingested. <laughs> you've been you've been so you know polluted with this conditioning. You've been thinking about this since you were a five year old girl. Because that's how culture t sets you up when you become a mother, when you have your own children. You know, we do it to our own children without thinking. But what it does is, while it does propagate the species, and the, the shadow of it is that it sets you up to thinking that you got to have children. Right. And if you don't have children, then there's something missing and lacking in your lives. And I always tease with all the non-parents in my rooms whenever I have workshops that they are probably the most conscious parents because they haven't messed anybody up yet, you know? Right. I love how you talk about um, parenting as um, our ability to mess people up because that just tickles me, and it's so true. We can really do a mess. Yeah, we can do it really well. <laughs> so um, one of the things, and, and I don't know where I heard it, heard you say it, but you, you talk about being a conscious parent and, and realizing that a child is – you did not create this child, that you, um, the child was brought through you or, or something. Talk about that. I love the way okay. you say it. So a lot of people say, you know, you've created this child and I always have to pause them and say, no, 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 no. We didn't create anything. And that's, that receives pushback because again, mythology and 
parenting paradigms and culture has uh, extolled that the parent has created the child. So the child, the parent thinks they're some mythical hero mm -hmm. because they believe they've actually created the child. They know they did not because no one can really. Right. Um, it's it's the process of life itself, but. We take ownership over that process, which is a delusion. And because we have this delusion, we extend it further into possession and control of our children. And then we want to hit the living daylights out of them because we can. And we don't need to examine ourselves because they're ours to do anything we want to. So then the ego roars louder and louder in the parent and the child's true self fades away. You know, most of us are victims of our true self being decimated by unconscious parents. So that's what I'm trying to mitigate. I can't eternally and irrevocably erase it. I've already, me myself, I've already, you know, messed up my kid. But <laughs> I can help mitigate it through burning the light of consciousness. That, that was so much there, so much. Um, one of the things that was just incredible to me was trying to apply this <laughs> and I'm not there yet my kids are nine and ten so when you said you know ten is when you need to like get control I was like oh my gosh I have well my kids are eight and nine so they're almost eight almost nine and almost ten and I thought oh my gosh I have three more months and, you know and then he's ten <laughs> um I gotta talk to Dr. Shafali now it's <laughs> gotta happen quickly but um I don't even know where I was going with that but you know I can see moments and especially in my son's life where when you were saying you know we're the parent we're going to bend to our will you're going to do what i say i've noticed that when i just treat him with a little bit of respect mm -hmm. and it, it changes everything and so how where does the respect effect sort of come in like what age do you start to i guess as a parent if you've come from a family where you you know you've had your to bend to parental will at what age can you kind of change that and, and start acting a little more consciously toward maybe the way you t ask your children to do things or, you know, what are some examples? Sure, sure. I think that uh, every age is an age to turn toward greater respect. What you're really doing with respect is that you're honoring the sovereignty of the other being. And you're not presuming that you have control over this being. You're, you're mm -hmm. truly becoming humble to your very small speck in there in, 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 in influencing them. Where before you had some delusional idea of your grandiose, grandiose powers, now you're becoming humble that, oh, okay, my child has their own life force. They're here to enact their own destiny. And I'm just, you know, a small speck in this whole play. So let me take a back seat and get back into my humility and begin to respect this child who has their own life force that is quite admirable and undeniably uh, looming large. So who am I in mm -hmm. all of this? Well, how do you, how do you reconcile um, sort of being respectful of your children, but also making sure they come out to be like good members of society and have manners and follow rules? Like how, how does that look, what does that look like in conscious parenting? Well, it looks like the same. It just is is not go, going ape crazy if the kid doesn't <laughs> say thank you or please. But it's constantly reminding them, constantly checking on them, you know, if they're out of line or bounds. But again, it's also recognizing that you can't make sure of anything. You can you can make sure that you're doing your part. You can't make sure that they'll turn out to be good citizens. You know, you the your, you could make sure that 
you're reminding them to say please and thank you every single day, but they could still become homeless or drug peddlers. You can't, you can't control their future. All you can control is who you are in the moment. So I waken parents to seize their own consciousness so that later on they don't say, oh, where was I? Why didn't I notice what was going on with my child? Why wasn't I present? Conscious parenting means that you awaken to your highest degree of presence. So you're as much as possible deeply connected to your child. When I when my children were very young, two and one, um, I was about 250 pounds and completely lost and just had no idea what would make me happy. And I started working out and started exercising. And then I found the sport of triathlon. And I realized how much that made me happy. And it gave me a, a purpose and a self-worth and all these great things. And as my daughter got older um, and she saw me, you know, riding my bike and running, um, one of my deepest fears and, and I guess childhood issues was my weight, right? And so I was always, it was always around food. And so I always had this fear that I was going to somehow project that onto my daughter. But mm-hmm. the opposite, because I knew what I wanted with working out and, and training, um, the opposite has happened. She wants to be healthy and she wants to run and play. And so is that kind of did I make a step in the right direction as far as conscious parenting with just taking care of myself in that regard? Absolutely. You yeah. just seize the moment, healed yourself, embodied what you wanted to reflect, and then you left it up to her to to take it on and be inspired or not. Mm-hmm. So how much how much can we push our kids and not push them? Like if they don't want to play baseball, but you know they have potential – like what age do you just go okay it's up to you like what is how how much are you allowed to right to right push? <laughs> well i think i think technically you know you want to always be attuned to who your child is it's not about potential for winning it's about their own organic interest so you always try to pay attention to interest and then of course you push a little bit you want to expose them and try make them see different things but certainly by 9 or 10 if they're really pushing back you let it go So you enter it not with an idea that it's going to be a lifelong commitment. You enter it just to see, are they interested? So we enter it wrong, right? We pretend that we're entering it because we want to make sure that they're exposed to their interests. But we know we're entering it because we want to get a scholarship for college, (laughs) right? So we, we do this double speak and then we pretend and then we're eternally disappointed and we feel resentful to our children as if they did anything. Right. Instead of just realizing these should be hobbies, they should stay as hobbies, and they do not uh, define the identity of your child or you or their future. So when you see those parents on the baseball field losing their mind, do you want to just like take them to the side and say, we need to talk? <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even go. You know, it's just it's so it's so delusional and uh, sad and immature. It's just sad. It's just pathetic that we allow ourselves to take over what should be just innocent, playful hobbies of our children. You see, what's happened is we've professionalized everything. Nothing is just fun anymore. And childhood is supposed to be unbound fun, but we've made it a professional sport. The entire thing is a profession. Being a child right now is having a job, right? It's it's having an occupation, child. What's your occupation? Child. Really, we've made it a a job. and, And they can't just be. And this is the the plague of our culture that we don't know how to be ever. And we run away from being, you know, so the ramifications are 
are deep and complex. We don't want to pay attention to that because we keep thinking we're doing this in the best interest of our children. We're not doing this in the best interest of our children. We're doing it in the best interest of our egos because it makes us feel good. Or we're doing it to allay our fears because we're petrified that they'll turn out to be losers just like us. Oh, oh, that was that was that one stung. Or <laughs> we want them to be successful like we are. How's that? Right, right. That's true. It's projection. Yes, exactly. So I think it was you um, in the interview with Oprah where you talked about taking your daughter to ballet when she was eight. Was that your interview? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so t- tell everyone about that. Well, you know, just uh, to speak of this whole mania about pushing your children and wanting them to be ahead of the curve, um, I had not exposed my daughter to any formal things till the age of six. You know, sure, we did a lot of creative stuff, but all homegrown and homespun and really cheap. And um, I just refused to spend money on a child, you know, where I didn't know for sure who it is she was yet, and I wanted her to explore. So, you know, was savvy about not investing too much so I didn't have resentment or didn't tie her down before she was ready. But um, as it would be, we went for her first exposure to ballet at the age of eight. And by then, you know, everyone's already, you know, in some league and winning championships. So she was already tall for her age. And then they wanted to put her in with the three and four year olds. And she was so upset and insulted. And uh, it just hit me that, oh, my goodness, I'm like five years behind the curve already. And she's not even 10. So how did this come to be? And as just a social commentator and um, eternally curious about the human psyche, I was fascinated to see this thing, you know, how these kids were being uh, roboticized and trained to run these marathons and pick professions at the age of three and four. So she could not even enroll, really. She was behind everywhere, behind in tennis, behind in ballet. And then, of course, I did, you know, a quick inner shaming, you know, uh, jaunt of, well, what did I do? Did I mess up her opportunities? She could have been in the Olympics. Look what I've done. (laughs) So, you know, then you begin to beat yourself up. And all of it is just just such garbage. And but it's the game of of the culture's conditioning and you fall into it. You fall prey to it. And how old is your daughter now? 14. And she's she's okay without two-year-old ballet, right? <laughs> right. She's surviving. Just hanging yeah. on by a thread, but surviving. <laughs> right. So for parents, let's get back to the, the kind of the stages. So for parents of, of say, school-aged children that are heading into elementary school, your kindergartner comes home from, from school. What does is, what is conscious parenting look like in the afternoons? Because I know what it feels like in the house sometimes. It feels like we're all going to die. Everything needs to be on a schedule. We're never going to get anything done. Wash your butt. Get in bed. Read a book. You know, what, what does conscious parenting look like for the school-aged child? Well, you know, all of us fall prey to being drill sergeants, you know, do this, do that, do that. You play from 647 to 649 and then you brush it. You know, everything is scheduled and managed because toddlerhood especially and kindergartners are such out of control creatures that they really trigger us into chaos. We don't like it. You know, we want everything clean and orderly and we've grown up in order to have things under control, not for things to fall apart. So here your kid comes, totally a mess, every day a different thing. You know, 
And they're just sticky. Been, they're sticky and they have stuff on dirty, their clothes. They're so dirty, yes. So <laughs> terribly inconvenient. Thank goodness they're just slightly cute. But even that's right. wearing off, you know. It's, uh, it's They don't look as cute anymore. And <laughs> so you, be, you begin to have serious doubts about why you had children, but you can't return them. So right. you are now stuck with them. And it's it's hell, right? So you're waiting for 7.30, 8 o'clock when they go to sleep. Like that becomes your mission. So from the moment they come home, it's just like the, the just getting to the finish line, which is get them to sleep. Right. And this is the problem. We forget to enjoy this most delicious part of life, of childhood, which is this in, the, the insatiable curiosity, this lack of caring about smelliness and dirt and just moving from one moment and one mood to the other. Yes, it's infuriating. Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Hyde. That's true. But the beauty of it is that it teaches you impermanence and it teaches you to be flexible and teaches you not to hold on to your emotions for 50 days at a time. Mm. And so there's so much to learn from the toddler that we simply miss because we can't surrender to this madness called toddlerhood. But I, and, and the whole early you know, elementary years are kind of full of anxiety. These kids cry at the drop of a hat. Then they start giggling like crazy people. Then they're falling asleep on your couch at two o'clock in the afternoon. And then you're worried. Now they won't sleep at night. So you wake them up. Then they're grousy and gro gro grouchy all day. Drowsy and grouchy all day. Um, you know, it's this endless spinning wheel that we put ourselves in the midst of. And we need to get off it. So once we get off it, then we can relax and enjoy this madness of early childhood and surrender to the fact that we have no control. There are no real rules. And the more rules you have, the more disappointed you're going to be. And just to enjoy this time, don't make it a big, rigid, codified system where you are all in the military and everybody's being punished, right? Mm -hmm. Don't overdo this age. This is an age of just being easy, teaching our children that life is fun and joyful and spontaneous. But we want to make little martial, uh, you know, artists out of them at the age of eight and seven. And that's not their way of being. Their way of being is to be easy and relaxed and lazy and just being. Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge for us. Well, how do you discipline a child? Well, first you have to be consistent and as consistent as you can be, knowing that every moment is different, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to have kind of a methodology. So I always say that instead of looking at how to discipline your child, you first discipline your own craziness. You discipline <laughs> your own disorganization. You discipline your own overscheduling. You discipline your own reactivity. Don't discipline the child. Create uh -huh. the conditions for them to behave okay. And then have a huge bandwidth. And understand that this age has very low executive functioning. They are not capable of forward thinking. They're flighty and capricious. They cannot remember what they said. And this is just their nature. It's not because they're intentionally evil. And then figure out how to meet your child's connectivity needs. When you do that, the need to discipline fades away. Discipline, I believe, the way it's being done in terms of spanking and timeouts and taking away things, especially when kids are young, is a lazy way of raising your children because you can't tolerate teaching them. Right. You can't tolerate all the mistakes that they're going to make. So you just make it very us against them, very personal, and you just scare the hell out of them. You've, you've figured out that fear works well. Yes. So that's, fear. that's fear and shame keeps the kid in your grasp. 
because if they didn't have fear or shame they'll they'll defy you and who wants a defiant kid and they'll tell you that you're wrong and then we're really going to get pissed off so we want to beat them down into obedience and subservience and that's why we discipline but there's no real room for discipline discipline for the most part is hierarchical dominant threatening shaming hmm and then you have teenagers when you have instilled fear and shame i mean right then what happens oh my goodness well then one of two things either they continue to be subservient and disappear into the woodwork only to rise later in some sort of addiction or sickness or they rebel they become the bad quote unquote bad kid uh, screaming for help so we have to understand that these behaviors are really reflective of a deeper need within the child that's not being met and instead of reacting to them we need to figure out what is the need is the need for more connection is the need for me to be clear about my boundaries and my limit setting what what do i need to do to respond to this child right now i may have responded differently to another kid but how do i respond to this child right now mm-hmm. so your child is like for example if our, if our listeners are listening and they're like well i'm screwed my kid's 15 mm-hmm. um i have whipped and scolded and yelled and parented out of fear how do you reach a teenager or what do you do to turn things around Well it's gentle you can't just expect some big result and then start being nice and then expect your kid to just be nice and then you know get upset with them when they're not taking the bait now you just have to like ease up and build connection start building connection however and whenever you can without any expectations don't make it conditional just become unconditional and build that connection again so your kid feels safe to start talking to you listen if by teenagehood you don't have a strong connection the teenager is not going to start the connection right now it's going to be very hard so you may have to wait for the next cycle when they have their own kids and then you can jump in again it's hard listen kids by the age of 15 16 have been solidified in their way of being and if they are cynical about your unconditional trust um then that's how it is yeah So what advice do you have for parents in this Snapchat internet age? I am terrified, Dr. Shafali. I am terrified of the teenage years with um we have a very limited electronics in our house and um I just I don't even know what to do. I, I guess I'm living in fear and I'm probably not being very conscious. <laughs> what are you, what are you afraid about? Well, I mean, I'm you know what? I'm afraid of that's a really good question. Deep down, what am I afraid of? Mhm. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. I I I guess I'm afraid of what I should be afraid of, which is like internet predators and and sexuality in these kids at such a young age and mm-hmm. danger 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 because I feel like I should be afraid of that. Mhm. But I don't know that I'm actually afraid of it because I'm very mired in social media. I think it's a great tool and my daughter loves musically and she does her, you know, dance routines mm-hmm. on there. So I don't know. Maybe I'm not afraid. Maybe I feel like I should be afraid and because society is telling me to be afraid. <laughs> no, I think I think fear is never the right answer, but I think caution is and mm-hmm. being being savvy is and having good limits and healthy boundaries yourself around your own internet use and putting in the the sensors that will protect your children from stimulation that they're not ready for. Um I think we should do all that. I think we okay. should be vigilant. I think we should take away the iPad after a certain amount of time. I think it is bad for their brains at after some point. 
I think we should carefully monitor what they watch. Definitely, like you're giving them a weapon of mass destruction. Like right. you can't give them that. But you also don't have to live in fear of it because then you're losing your own peace over it. Well, I heard you say you need to monitor your own internet activity and social media. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's hard for parents to do, right? It is. I think I love so much of what you do, Dr. Shafali, because it is putting so much responsibility on us as parents to really dig into who we are. And when, when our son was very, when he was about three, we were having constant tantrums, tantrums that lasted 30, 45 minutes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just didn't know what to do. And so I went to a a child psychologist in our area and right out of the gate, she said, he he is exhibiting symptoms of a mother who is depressed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how dare you? But really, she was, I mean, she hit the nail on the head. I was so unhappy with who I was. And that little boy just wanted my attention. Wow. And and we turned it around in three months with her help. And he is the most loving, most sensitive child. But it was stemming from me. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know why that was so surprising. I think because I, at up until that point, I was living under the assumption that I created this kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I so you were going through such a tra- transition, and you didn't give yourself a chance to heal, and then your child immediately absorbs that and begins to manifest the reaction. Yeah, it's incredible. And such it's good work. Incredible! It's incredible how quickly they absorb things from you, and how quickly they just turn around when you turn around. I mean, they walked up uh, just a couple of days ago, and they came in the door from school, and they were both dragging their b- backpacks, like looking like it was the worst day ever. And I just really upped the tempo of my talk and my energy. And within five minutes, they were happy. It's so incredible. It's like almost an experiment. Like if if we're happy, they're happy. Yeah, they can move so quickly, you know, and that's why we have to capitalize on on their ability to evolve is much greater than ours and uh, you know try to so therefore the hope in uh, hope for us parents is that we can quickly, like you said, shift and if we shift they'll shift so let's shift so it doesn't matter what happened 10 minutes ago or that you lost your temper an hour ago start in this moment you know start at the beginning again and enter this moment with renewed clarity and purpose and connection and your children will fall into alignment yeah and also recognizing that they're just divine little beings with their own brains and light and life i I don't know since i've started listening to you and, and, and how you, in, in your work, just that small little tidbit has changed a lot for me. Mm. And I don't know why we forget that they're humans. <laughs> because we're so conditioned to believe that we own them. Yeah. That they're possessions. It's incredible. So you said we need to evolve. Let's talk about your conference you have coming up. Yes, I'd love to. So uh, it's my intention to create gathering places of concentrated, focused, conscious energy. And so I've created a summit that I do every year. It's next month in Long Beach, California. It's a stunning gathering of parents, educators, teachers, coaches, and children of parents, you know, just adult children of parents who want to come to understand how to free themselves from their own past 
and we have meditation. We have fabulous speakers, uh, Reverend Michael Beckwith. We have Oscar-winning uh, film producer uh, Bar Barnett Bain coming. We have How to Raise an Adult author Julie Lithcott-Himes coming. We have uh, topics on anxiety, ADHD, oppositional defiancy, uh, marital issues, couple work. So I try to touch on all aspects of daily living in these three days. It's in September next month, Long Beach, California, and all information can be available on my website at drshefali.com. And I'll offer your listeners a $50 off coupon with the code 50 off, 50OFF. So Very I hope cool. that uh, they take advantage and come and see us. I bet that is a really emotional three days. It is, it is. By the end of it, it's pretty amazing at how many people go through deep transformations. It's like doing, you know, insight, uh, having me lecture 24-7. You know, I'm there all three days. I'm pretty much the main lecturer along with these guest speakers. And we deconstruct and liberate all sorts of constraining belief systems. Oh, I love it. I love it. So one more question for you. Um, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it comes from the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, and what we do with those 24 hours is what makes the difference mm -hmm. between our health and happiness and success. So what is something that you do in your 24 hours that just makes such a major difference in your day-to-day -day life? Well, I think that the two main consistent things I do is I exercise my body almost every single day uh, and break a sweat and, and feel my body and enter my body and, and, and just rejuvenate physically. And then the other thing I do definitely every day, sometimes twice a day, is I meditate. So that rejuvenates me into a place of quiet and stillness and uh, realigns me with my source and rem reminds me that I am beyond this form and I don't need to get caught up in all these things of ego. And just again, reminds me that we are essentially limitless and expansive and boundless. I love it. And you won't believe meditation is the most commonly answered, most common answer to that question. Yeah, it's great. It's speaking it. up. Yeah, people are realizing that sitting in stillness is an essential. It makes me have hives, but I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shavali, it's just not the time for you. Don't worry about no, it. My time will come, right? I have to yes, grow absolutely. into the, the adult It'll child grow. I need to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll post the links up to the conference and your website. And um, I just appreciate you. I appreciate your work. And thanks for, for being here. Thank you, Meredith. Thanks to everyone listening. All right. Take care. episode is brought to you by Bluebird Hair Design in Atlanta, Georgia. I have to do this ad for my hair girl and I joked about what do I call her because I can't call her my hair girl but my master cosmetologist Mel Ayers I was in her chair today um, and we were talking about questions for Dr. Shafali, and she had some really great questions so I was like I'm gonna put you on my podcast and she's like no and I was like yes no but anyway, Bluebird Hair Design in Atlanta, her Instagram is Bluebird Hair Design. She does all the things with the amazing hair that all the cool kids are doing. And you get 10% off your first visit at Bluebird Hair Design when you mention the podcast. So check out Instagram at Bluebird Hair Design. Link is in the bio to how to book your appointment.